I'm Duncan McLeod, and this is Tech Central. Now, my next guest probably doesn't need much introduction, especially to captains of industry in South Africa. Dr. Dewat De Silva, businessman, advisor, ex-banker, current chairman of Huge Group. Uh, Dewat, we've known each other for, for many years, and I, I'm, I'm probably missing many, if not most, of the hats that you've worn over that period of time. I was trying to remember this morning ahead of this podcast when we uh, first actually met, and I think it was uh, in Diagonal Street at Merrill Lynch's offices uh, um, when I was a green around the gills uh, journalist straight out of journ school uh, working at the Financial Mail. And I came to see you to talk about these uh, big, scary IT companies like Persitel and Dimension Data. And uh, you uh, very kindly spent a considerable amount of time with me uh, teaching me about these companies and going through their annual reports and uh, talking about their opportunities, etc. Um, that feels like a bit of a lifetime ago now, though. Um, it was we, we, we did meet at uh, Merrill Lynch's offices in downtown Joburg, didn't we? That's right. It probably wasn't even Merrill Lynch. It was probably uh, Smith, Borkham, Hare, uh, Merrill yes. Lynch. Yes, yes, you're right. You're right. Before Merrill, Merrill Lynch came in and bought it, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, it started off as Davis Borkham Hare. Um, they did a deal in London. Then Merrill Lynch bought that uh, investment bank in London, 50, which had a 50% stake in uh, Davis Borkham Hare. And then Merrill Lynch decided to take it wholly owned as international organizations like to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you were a director at, at Merrill Lynch. Uh, you worked your way up into the directorship position. Um, but I, I remember most you produced these amazing reports on uh, on IT companies at the time. And Dimension Data was one of them. I'm going to be talking about Dimension Data in some detail today. Um, but companies like Qdata and Persitel, you, you produced these these fat reports. I think there were 100 pages or more each uh, with, a, uh, with a lovely cartoon on the cover of each of them. Um, and they were great reading. Um, but uh, yeah, a long time ago, and the industry's changed dramatically uh, since then. Do you still keep in touch with uh, with all those guys in the IT industry that uh, you, uh, which you met and no doubt made friends with back in those days? Probably most of them. I did start an industry in 1994. The IT sector didn't exist. Yeah. It was a subsector of the electrical and uh, electronics industry uh, sector. That's as right. The financial world defined it, and the JSE defined it at the time. I remember that, and there were a couple of companies listed. Um, Versatel was one of them, QData. Who were some of the other names around in there? Roynet was around, I think, at the time, but they were more of an industrial group. I actually dug up an old report that I did. Um, so, yes, uh, there was Roynet, there was Ultron. Um, I, I produced my first report on what I called the IT sector, and I uh, just pulled it out. It was um, in March 1995, and in that report I've got companies like Dimension Data, ISG, Persistel, QData, Siltec, and FinTech, which was part of the Ultron Group. I covered, I actually started as the motor analyst, so my very, very first report was on Toyota, which had a market cap of 4 billion rand and no shareholders. Oh, well. Oh, well. Okay. So how, do you, how did you progress into the IT space? Was it uh, something that interested you? Well, I was hired because of my industry background. I had uh, I've got an engineering education, and I'd spent some time in management consulting, specifically Accenture, Anderson Consulting in those days. And um, they were kind of experimenting with uh, uh, broad, broadening research capability outside of just chartered accountants. I remember interviewing for it, and um, the, my to-be boss was a little bit concerned that I wasn't a, an accountant. 
And I expressed to him, I said, look, come in, um, accounts one will probably take me a day, accounts two, two days, accounts three is harder, probably take me a week to review. <laughs> he, took the, he took the gamble and, um, and I think it did become a benchmark in, in, in the future that mm. actually people outside of uh, accounting can become an analyst because of the industry background. So it made sense that I look after uh, in da- industrial stocks. So I was looking at uh, non-GDFI uh, stocks, non-consumer stocks, and it just so happened that electrical engineering and motor, and eventually I became the diversified analyst as well, um, all form part of that subsector. IT was just simply happened to be a component of that, which my boss told me, please stop worrying about the small fry, and let's concentrate on the decent-sized companies like Roynet and Ultron, where we at least can make some money from trading these stocks. Yeah, yeah, and one of those small fry was, of course, Dimension Data, which would go on, I think, at one point to be the most valuable company by market cap on the JSE. Certainly, I remember that uh, Dimension Data, I can't remember the exact numbers. Mm-hmm. When I started analyzing Dimension Data, it had a market capitalization of 400 million rand, Profit after tax of 20 million rand <laughs> and, um, and turnover of about 400 million rand. So it was on a 20 PE, which everyone thought was crazy. They'd listed in 1987 with them um, and it traded, I think, for about five years below their listing price. Wow. So it, it was kind of tiny. I think the collective, the market cap of dimension data um, exceeded all the mining companies put together. Wow. Wow. At the peak. At the peak before they all delisted. Yeah, yeah, before the dot-com crash happened and, and took down the IT sector with it. That's right. You yeah. know, uh, uh, look, uh, there was a, a grouping of them that uh, were kind of developing the market. And I would I would have classified Persitel um, in the same category. Mm-hmm. IG was a little bit different. You know, if you recall, IBM had pulled out the country and uh, then spun out its business calling it ISG and that it then gone to market and uh, it listed with IBM as a 50% share that then relisted as IBM uh, post sanctions period. I remember that ISG, they were also known as ISM at one point if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Manage, management um, effectively uh, made a lot of money out of that but they were the biggest company on, on the sector and primarily at the time a hardware mm. producer. Mm. There was Siltec which is effectively the HP distributor, um, again, uh, a spin-out of the um, uh, sanctions era. So Siltec was the HP agency and then had a 48% stake in another listed business called QData. Ah, yes, QData, Pitembur. Pit and Paul was his brother who was a CFO, correct. Uh, Paul Dembur, yes, yes, okay. Um, uh, he was a real character, and of course, um, Persitel ended up buying QData, I think in the late 1990s or the early 2000s. Uh, of course, it eventually became part of Telcom, but I remember there was, it was, there was a bit of rivalry uh, between uh, the CEO of Persitel at the time, that was uh, a man by the name of, of Rumanitz and Jeremy Ord, who was leading Dimension Data at the time. They, they, they really were uh, neck and neck at one stage in terms of their size in the IT market here in South Africa, weren't they? Well, that's right. They both landed up being Cisco distributors internationally. They both used their paper effectively, neck and neck. And um, at a time, I remember uh, anecdotally, I was told that someone went to Cisco and said, you know, who are your 
two biggest distributors. And through the, the acquisitions that Dimension and Data had made, in particular Datacraft uh, and others, mm. they were number one. And number two was Persital that became PQ Holdings, had bought something called Telemation and others overseas. Mm. And someone came up with the idea and said, you know, let's create a mega Cisco distributor. And the discussion actually, as I understand it, probably started with a, a Persital looking at buying DD. That didn't go, for, didn't go far. Then it was a merger discussion. And then I don't really think that the chemistry gelled. Cultures are so different. Rue is an incredibly smart man, and as are the, the dimension data, but culturally, you know, um, I don't think that that could coexist. So Rue did the smart thing, and the, the crazy thing, I believe that in terms of the person who made the most money out of selling dimension data shares was Rumon, it's not Jeremy Ord. <laughs> because he sold it for X, by the time uh, uh, two dimension data got shares um, in consideration for the sale, yeah. and then disposed of those shares at two x, and it really worked out to be a very very big number. I, I was already uh, not an analyst, and I picked out I picked up in the press that ExecuJet, which was also a Rumon's mm. company at the time, was uh, had just placed a massive billion dollar order for additional aircraft. Wow. And I thought, you know, where's the capital raise coming from this? And I found up Rue and I said, well, what's going on? And I quickly, he didn't tell me, but I quickly worked out that um, the money was coming from a disposal. Interesting. Now, now Rue Marnitz, uh, he, he ended up leaving uh, uh, um, the company in the end. Uh, there, there was an acquisition. They bought a company in Germany, I think, called Comperex. And then a new CEO came on board. His name slipped my mind. I don't know if you remember his name. Uh, yeah, so the story was uh, Persitel. Yeah. were the agencies for Hitachi in South Africa. Mainframes, now, yes. It was the only country in the world where Hitachi had a higher market share than IBM. And the reason for that was Rumanitz. The reason for that was also sanctions. So Rumanitz mm. sold directly to government agencies. He then used his aircraft company to guarantee turnaround time of 24 hours. Uh -huh. So that was the initial foray. Then he broadened out, he bought Telemation, which was the Cisco business. Mm. But the agency, the, the German agency for Hitachi in Germany was Comparex. Yeah. So he bought that too. So they were, they were also a Hitachi agent uh, in Germany of the Japanese equipment. Interesting, interesting. Hitachi, yeah, I don't think anyone outside of South Africa knows that Hitachi was ever in the mainframe business. <laughs> That's right. And the gentleman you're thinking of was his chief operating officer. It was Rian Duplessis. Rian Duplessis. That's her name. I wonder where he is today. So, Rumanitz um, um, retired. Yeah. Uh, he was probably a more advanced age than, than, than most. And um, you know, I, I know he had some personal issues. And I heard that he'd settled in Botswana. He's come back. But... Now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he's probably in his 80s now. Yeah. So, Rion essentially took over. Of course, the, they had sold the uh, Golden Goose business. So, what they were left was actually the base of Hitachi and related. So, Rion essentially inherited that, moved over overseas. Um, then there was a bit of the shareholders. He wanted to embark on an acquisition um, campaign 
uh, you know, following suit what Rue had done and mm. expanding the business again in you know, a complex too. The shareholders kind of cut him off and he had to, essentially he bought out the European businesses. Comprex became the South African business, eventually landed up in Telcom because they had to unbundle. And Rion was forced or encouraged strongly to uh, pay back the cash in the center as a dividend. Investec led that charge as an active shareholder in the business. Rion, a few years later, uh, came back in uh, Pumalela, in the horse racing uh, business. And, I went, uh, and he, was, he studied with Marcus Uerster, you know, they did accounting together at Stellenbosch, and Marcus uh, was not, it wasn't through Steinhoff, but in his personal capacity was big into the horse racing, and he asked Rion to come and uh, run it for him, which he did. You know, when the whole scandal broke out, uh, Rion um, basically decided that he should set, step down from Pumalela. Interesting. And then, of course, there was Peter Watt who took over that business and, and he led it into, uh, into business connection, the merger with uh, the Mopatlane twins, and, uh, and eventually it was sold into Telcom, where it sits today. Yeah, Peter Watt, of course, uh, my first encounter with Peter Watt was when he was the chief executive officer under Bill Fenter in Ultron, whom I had a, a very, very interesting and long-term relationship with him and the family. Um, that is worthy of a soap opera. <laughs> uh, I do what, I, I'm starting to think we're going to be sitting here until uh, the sun sets today, but uh, we, we should probably get on track and talk a little bit about Dimension Data, which is actually the reason we're uh, chatting today. Um, it flows from uh, a, a piece that I published on Tech Central a couple of weeks ago now. Was it last week? It could have been the week before. Um, about uh, Jeremy Ord stepping down as executive chairman and leaving the group, um, which he's been with since 1980. Seven, I think. Um, uh, he's listed as a founder, although I think he only joined the group a year or two after it was started. Um, but I, th I think it's fair to call him a founder, given how um, intensely involved he was in the business for basically since its founding back in the mid-1980s. When did you first meet Jeremy? So I met Jeremy in, 19, in 1994 when I joined the industry. And I met him and the entire team at the Dimension Data Oval. Yeah. Uh, which was um, in, well, a little bit uh, further uh, from, from their current offices. In Epson Downs, yes. With the Epson Downs, that's yeah. right. With a market cap of 400 million rand, and I met his team, and um, a very impressive uh, and broad-based team. And there, there were probably a dozen executives mm. at the time that uh, formed the foundation, which was, I think, the differentiator between him and the other companies, and that was the quality and, and the depth of the team that they had. Yeah, yeah. So who were some of the guys who were there at the time? Who did you meet with, apart from Jeremy? So Jeremy, uh, obviously, uh, a, a real face of the business. But the other agenda, I spent a lot of time with Malcolm Rutherford, who was the financial director, Peter Hurd, um, you know, um, and Doc Watson, the, and there were a variety of other people that, as they made acquisitions, um, uh, that that came on board, yeah. and Richard Kane was very very instrumental. So that I spent, and there were a lot of ex Accenture Anderson Consulting colleagues that had joined Dimension Data. So there were dozens of people that I really knew in the business at various management levels. Yeah, but Malcolm Rutherford, being the CFO, was my primary contact. Yeah, Richard came in terms of strategic evolution of the business. 
and in terms of the direction in which Dimension was, was uh, a very important person. And Jeremy, of course. Well, yes. Those are the three people that I spend considerable amount of time yeah, yeah, we were we were stomping those same grounds, I think, around uh, around the mid to late nineteen nineties. I remember, uh, I remember meeting Jeremy at, at those Epson Downs offices as well for the first time, probably in around 1994, Um And Richard came, spent a lot of time with me as well, uh, taking me through the business, as as I'm sure he did with you and and everyone else he met with. But um, I was always amazed how Richard uh, always took the time. I had a regular meeting with him. I think it was a monthly or quarterly meeting, uh, where he'd uh, we'd, we'd I'd go through to the to their um, offices in Epson Downs and. With him for an hour, hour and a half, and he'd take me through everything that was happening in the industry and die data strategy and where they were going, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I still value that that time with Richard today. And he's obviously gone off and done uh, very successful things outside of the dimension d- uh, data group since. But uh, I think that's one of the uh, interesting things. And I think you brought it up in your uh, in, in a recent post you did on on LinkedIn about uh, about Jeremy's um, leaving the group and and the impact he's had on the on the economy and the and the IT sector here in South Africa. But um, th- th- I think the the, the the key message out of this is just how many strong, capable um, business people came out of this group and have gone on to do amazing things. Yeah, look, I mean, what they've done there is, abso- is absolutely incredible. And, you know, I was saddened to see Jeremy leaving. To me, it's a little bit like Stephen Kossoff leaving Investor. You know, it, 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 there comes a time. Mm. But, you know, when the founders leave the business, it, it becomes something else. The same thing goes for Rand Merchant Bank. You know, the, these are, are absolute legends that created and built an institution that is um, a benchmark in that particular sector. So they, uh, it, it really is fantastic. And as I said, some of those executives have gone on to do some incredible things. Malcolm Rutherford, for instance, is the, the chairman of Crooks Brothers, and he's gone and created another career in agriculture. Richard Kane is the founder of Dark Fiber Africa and Vumital. Now, the last I checked, Remgro have valued those assets close to 10 billion rand. Mm. It might be a couple of years late. And uh, Richard did start those from scratch. David Frankel went on to become one of very, the, uh, to set up a private equity business in um, uh, in the US that was an early investor in Uber and so he has done incredibly well and, and just for reference David Frankel was one of the founders of Internet Solutions. Mm. It was one of the acquisitions that Dimension Data uh, made and brought on board. <laughs> Funnily enough um, I just went back on my report and I, I was amazed because I'd forgotten that Dimension Data bought an early stake in Internet Solutions <laughs> For 12.5 million rand, 25% stake. Wow. Subsequently, less than a year later, paid 375 million rand for the next 75%, which was crazy because none of those founders, the Uptierkers, Frankels, etc., were all sub 30 at the time. Absolutely amazing, yeah. Um, and, and even even then, that 375 million rand in hindsight was probably a steal. It was, but, you know, Internet Solutions was. was um, uh, you know, if you use accounting measures, um, ridiculously valued. You know, if you look at the value investors, they would have gone, you know, these guys have lost their mind. But it was interesting. Dimension Data, in the acquisition strategy, in the, and if you go back, what they did is they always bought a small little stake. And they were quite happy to pay for their value. And an increased valuation thereafter, once they've tested the 
chemistry once they were had made sure that the investment was going to fit. So they did that with investment internet solutions. They did it with, with the Australian acquisition called Comtech. They even did that with uh, Datacraft. I guess where the wheels came, came off was when they made the US acquisition. Yes, no due diligence done. Well, you know, uh, I know that there were two executives, you know, they had a mountain of money, and I don't think that was the big issue. Mm-hmm. I think the big issue was understanding what we're good at. And what Dimension Data was good at operating uh, services-based companies in emerging markets. And I'll put Europe into that. The U.S. is a different market. There are very few South Africans who have been successful in the U.S. Yeah. It's a different culture. It's a different approach. Mm. It's, and I think that we all would like to go there. It's a little bit like South Africans going to Australia. Dimension Data were successful in Australia. But I think, uh, by the way, buying a company founded by ex-South Africans, but I think if you look, even Discovery um, really have not made a mark in the U.S. It's hard. Mm. It's a very tough market, yeah. Very, very tough market. Off. Rue Minus was about, before he did the Dimension Data deal, was going to do, uh, going to buy a big Cisco distributor in South America. Mm-hmm. And because the transaction Dimension Data went through, that transaction never materialized. I would suggest that Dimension Data would have done a lot better for themselves following through on that mm-hmm. than going uh, for a common language. And that was the reason they felt more comfortable there than in South America. Yeah. I think culturally and from a business point of view, they would have been better equipped to deal in South America than in the US. Yeah, but yeah. Everything is perfect in hindsight. I remember talking to Jeremy about this actually not that long ago. Last year sometime I had an interview with him and I brought up, I think the company was called Proxicom, if I remember correctly. That's right. Proxicom. And they got into a bidding war with Compaq, which was later bought by Hewlett-Packard. Uh, and, and the price was being driven up and up and up and up through, through this bidding war with Compaq at the peak of the dot-com bubble when valuations were way out of kilter and they ended up paying so much for Proxicom that it didn't make any sense whatsoever. As I say, I mean, the valuation, let's just remember that they raised almost a billion pounds on yep. their IPO in, in London. So they had probably raised money on and inflated it. So they had, they had the firepower. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I mean, one has to be careful of auction fever and, uh, and chasing valuations up. I, I do believe that they had the competency and the advisors. just happened to be my old house, Merrill Lynch, that were advising them. Okay. The competency, and the, I think the valuations would have been within the, their, uh, um, their capability. Mm. I think a couple of things happened. I think one is uh, Y2K came and went and uh, and the market simply vaporized and that, dem- that demand just uh, froze out. So, so the business just went away. And uh, so I think that had a material. And then I think that uh, Proxicom, one of the key issues, uh, I think it was a Mexican chap that had uh, actually founded the business, had entered into a multiplicity of uh, long-term uh, leases on property, which uh, was really an albatross around their neck. Oh, and okay. Brett Dawson actually was, at some point, because Brett was hired from national brands uh, and then landed up running investments, uh, internet solutions, and then was seconded into the United States to go and fix this up. And literally, mm. it was a fix-up job. And the fix-up was probably shutting down all of, uh, all of these offices. And that landed up really um, chewing up a lot of that capital, that dimension mm. data. But if one goes fundamentally, I think the, the idea of going to the U.S. 
was attractive. You know, you were going to go to the hub where technology was evolving. It was English speaking. Mm. But it was um, a mirage because I don't think South Africans are, are, are good at doing business in the US. Do you think it was a bit of hubris as well? I mean, these guys were celebrated at home. Jeremy was on the front cover of business magazines being lauded as this brilliant businessman who was taking this uh, South African company global. Uh, um, there was a lot of positive PR around them. they just come off this very, very successful listing in London. Do you think there was some hubris behind this that they just said, we're invincible, we can do whatever we want? We're all human. You know, I, I remember the publicity I used to get. You know, you start believing that anything's possible. So, you know, I'd imagine th th there was a, a little bit of that. But, you know, it was also the go-go days. You know, it was yeah. Yeah. A, a use it or lose it. You know, mm. uh, a lot of people used to complain that it's not rocket science to issue paper on a high multiple and buy earnings on a low multiple. Correct. Um, but if you don't do it, you're going to be on a low multiple and therefore you can't. So there was... Almost, there is that momentum that you need to keep up. And yeah. the problem is you go, the, the size of your acquisition needs to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. So yeah. Say, in hindsight, it all looks uh, pretty obvious. You know, they did the best job that they could. Yeah. And uh, the reality is that Dimension Data did a little bit like Cisco. At the peak, I think Cisco almost peaked at a trillion-dollar market cap. And I yeah. think it was the first to almost touch that level. They then collapsed to fifty to a measly fifty billion. And <laughs> today, Cisco is still a considerable and a substantial company mm. at probably two hundred fifty three hundred billion dollars, mm. mm. which says it's still a good company. It just says that the valuations don't necessarily reflect um, value, uh, the, the real value inherent yeah. in the business. So, at a point in time, Dimension Data was overvalued. Yes, I think it entered even the FTSE. Uh, the FTSE index for a couple of days. Remember the share spiked on, a, on um, an index trade. I think the share went from 75 to 100 rand yeah. uh, on an yeah. index spike. Uh, that gave it a market cap, if I'm not mistaken, of 100 billion rand, went into five rand to the dollar. Yes, yes. No, it was it was an absolute remar remarkable time. But uh, it all come came unstuck after two thousand. There was the proxy come. There was the dot com crash. The the shares the shares plunged. And and Dimension Data actually got into a lot of trouble. Um, I, I seem to recall that uh, they um, you know they built that huge palatial campus in in Bryanston, which they have now sold. Uh, as part of a BE uh, deal. Um, but that, that campus almost became a, an albatross around their neck at one point. I think it almost sank them. Yeah, look, they had a lease. And uh, as far as I know, it was always off balance sheet in any case. You know, so um, it, it, the reality is, you know, you, you predicting the future and your, and your space requirements is always tricky. So... The, the, it did become a liability. I mean, Sassel was not that different um, a year ago. Yeah. They've got that monumental building. I think at a point in time, you know, when their share price collapsed, the building was all, almost worth more than the business. Yes. So I don't think that was uh, the issue. If you looked at Dimension Data, it did look like their balance sheet was okay. But the problem was at that time, if I recall, they had stakes in entities that had minority shareholders like Datacraft, Mm. And so they didn't have access to money uh, where they needed it. So they did go and get themselves a loan from Mr. Johan Rupert, and that is how Remgro landed up being a shareholder in Dimension Data oh. because it was a convertible loan, and I think it converted to more equity 
then uh, they want. You know, uh, mm-hmm. that is always the problem. You know, as an as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, you know, you're always bullish about your story. In mm. fact, you should even be a CEO if you're not. So you sell a good story. Someone lends you money and says, okay, if you don't make your targets, well, then the conversion's going to be uh, punitive, and it was. Mm. So Remgro mm. landed up actually taking up less than they were entitled to. If I'm not mistaken, again, they did, they went in below 30, so they didn't have to make in an offer to minorities. And it was right. actually right. through Remgro that NTNT landed up coming in and taking the um, stake in Dimension Data. Oh, yes. How did, how did that happen? Well, I, I, I wasn't in the market. I'm led to believe. Well, Remgro certainly sold their stake to NTNT. I'm led to believe that uh, Remgro led those discussions in terms of liquidating its position. And then um, NTNT um, were enthralled by the prospect of Datacraft, which, of course, is predominantly an, an Asian business. Yeah. So for them, it was a cheap entry into the group and a cheap entry into Datacraft. And then there was a sequence of trials. So they made an offer for Remgro, and I think they, for Remgro's stake, and then they made an offer to everyone else and eventually landed up um, taking the business private under their banner in a sequence of steps. That was around 2010, if I recall, created a 24 billion rand deal. Um, I, I was really surprised personally that, uh, that Jeremy stuck around uh, post that NTT deal. Um, uh, he, it would have seemed to me to be the obvious place to exit, but he didn't. He, he stayed on. He stayed on in an executive capacity as executive chairman of, of the group. Um, uh, so I suppose it's always difficult to know when, as a founder of a business, as a, as a leader, uh, the leader of a business for many, many years, uh, when when is the right time to go? Um, what, what do you what do you think of the fact that he did stick around for so long? Jeremy is an incredibly um, you know proud person, and you know he had obviously marketed the business. He was, I'm sure, personally disappointed in terms of where the valuation had landed up. Yeah, and I believe. Uh, that certainly it wasn't a financial requirement because, you know, rumor has it that he's done reasonably well for himself. I believe he was stuck around because he wanted, it was his baby, and he believed and he felt a sense of ownership and obligation to make sure that it was on sound footing. And he appointed numerous subsequent operational people, you know, whether it was Brett Dawson or the uh, or, or, or Jason Goodhall, which were all people that Jeremy personally appointed, you know, in terms of being the job and supporting it. So I believe that certainly was a very strong motivation. I think in the latter years, and I think it was in the public domain that it, and in fact, NTNT at some point in time said, you know, that South Africa, Africa and the Middle East perhaps were not core businesses um, for them. And the speculation is that Jeremy and the team were going to lead a management uh, buy-in it's mm-hmm. rather than buy-out. And I, I do believe that, you know, in, in recent years, that probably would have been also a motivator. Um, I think, of course, NTNT has come out and said that they have changed their mind, mm-hmm. that they are now, and again, this is our large international operate. And I believe that, uh, you know, and I don't know this for a fact, but probably that's when Jeremy decided that you know he, he has handed over the reins of to, to a very large and established organization mm. he did everything that he promised and in the absence of management buy-in or perhaps 
you know, a, a regional responsibility because he is, of course, one of those guys that um, has stuck around and, and been a dedicated and committed South African. I figure yeah. that, uh, you know, he decided in his personal in his personal right that time to go and do something else. He's never actually um, commented on the speculation, but it, you're right. It has there has been widespread speculation that uh, that he was trying to lead a management buyout of some kind, where NTT was remain a shareholder, but that Dimension Data would become a listed entity on the JSC. And I suppose if that's the, what you've been championing for a number of years and it doesn't come to fruition, then you uh, you um, you decide you you make a decision about whether or not you you're going to stick around. And I suppose he made the decision. To leave, do you think he's going to? Do you think he's going to pop up again somewhere? Do you think he's going to start a new business? And I know I'm asking you very spe- to be to speculate here, uh, Dwight, and it may be a bit unfair. But uh, do you think um, he's going to go quietly into the sunset or, uh, and retire, or do you think he's going to come back? Duncan, I was an analyst. Uh, I specialised in speculating. Um, <laughs> Jeremy's a very healthy, sports-conscious guy. He's, he's sixty-something, and he looks like forty-something. Yeah. He's yeah. incredibly, I don't, you know, he has interest in, in, in wine farms. He, he has international network. I would be surprised. In the, and I'm sure his family office uh, has numerous investments in their personal mm. right. I'd be surprised if he does not. In fact, I, I think it's virtually impossible for someone like that not to do something, whether mm. it's ranging from charitable work to um growing something new and exciting. Mm. I'm quite sure that he will do something. Yeah, yeah. But just coming back to to the, it's almost like there's two two sides to the, maybe even three parts to the dimension data story. There was the the period leading up to, to 2000 and the rapid growth and the fantastic margins and everything. And then there was the collapse from 2000, let's say, to the NTT acquisition in 2010, where they went through a very difficult time uh, where they were inwardly focused and turning around, um, trying to deal with the collapse in margins. And I think the fact that um, companies in South Africa, which pre 2000 probably saw IT as some sort of mystical thing that they didn't really understand. We need to get these boffins in from Dimension Data to help us to to co- corporate South Africa. I think taking a much more pragmatic approach to IT and realizing what it is, and actually it's not that magical. Uh, we just need to Im- implement it correctly. So there was a, a very much a change in, in focus amongst uh, corporate end users. But I think at the same time the market became much more competitive from a Cisco perspective as well, didn't it? I mean Cisco appointed a lot more uh, distributors in the local market, and those. Margins after 2000 literally collapsed. You're 100% right. There was a mystique in, in the 90s. And actually, interestingly enough, I think IT proliferated in South Africa almost as a consequence of sanctions. Mm. You know, the capability and the knowledge and the know how that was created, other countries didn't experience this because they sim- the Americans simply parachuted in their subsidiaries. Mm. And if you think about IBM, they had a limitation. Hence, you had Itachi have a market share in South Africa. You had QData that had capabilities. Uh, you had Dimension Data that had capabilities. And they were able to leverage that. And also, as you say, you know, I remember Dimension Data buying TCO, a brand new entity that was listed for about 32 seconds. They paid <laughs> million rand for it. And it was uh, 40 Microsoft engineers. So someone phoned me and said, what do you think of the deal? I said, you should have given me 40 million rand. I would have gone to a recruitment agency <laughs> and paid 20 million and pocketed 20 million of profit to hire those guys. But the issue was they needed to move at pace. They said, we don't have the time. So it was cheap at the price. Because, as you, see, you know, there was this mystique. 
your margins were running at 30, 40, 40%. Mm -hmm. As you had more people attracted to the industry and the market then shrank past Y2K because there was no Y2K disaster, you know, the, the whole thing got commoditized, margins squeezed, and you know, the, the resources became available. The, the scarcity of uh, unique products like Cisco weren't that scarce. And so, you know, you had to move on to the next, but that's where Dimension Data was smart. You know, they jumped onto outsourcing with the joint venture with EDS when outsourcing was just proliferating. They jumped onto the internet. And what you were really banking wasn't Dimension Data as a Cisco distributor. You were banking on Dimension Data to find the new, new thing. And that's what they were good. And that's where someone like Richard came was particularly good. Yeah. Go and shoot into the U.S. and look at the trends. The beauty about South Africa is that we were six months behind the U.S., which enabled you to be not at the bleeding edge. So you could go out there, you could peruse and observe. Mm -hmm. You could see the next trend and then bring it back without the risk. And so what you were betting, and this is what you're betting these days on, on, on these massive companies, is that it's not that they are going to get disrupted because you won't invest. You invest in technology because it's disruptive. If you don't think uh, Amazon will ever be displaced, well, it's going to land up. Uh, you know, the law of big numbers says that at some point in time, you can only grow at five or six percent. They will be displaced, mm -hmm. but you uh, you bet on the the management team of their uh, ability to identify, to invest and to develop new ideas. And that's what Dimension Data was proving. That's why it was impossible to value it on the metrics that accountants love to do, PE ratios, discounted cash flow, because how do you measure the acceleration and ability to jump from one peak to the next? Well, you're going to make a judgment call. And that's why I introduced the thing called peg ratios into this country in the 90s, because I said PE ratios velocity, and if you're going to determine if a car, how long it takes a car to get from here to Pretoria, you've got to know the velocity and you've got to know the acceleration. And ultimately, you've also got to know what petrol it has in the tank if it can get there. Then you know how far it can get. And that's why yeah, it was instructive, but they become qualitative rather than quantitative. And this is where value investors missed it every time. Mm. This is why they missed you know, the Amazon and the... Uh, and all these uh, and all these massive uh, organisations that now exist, the Facebooks, have proliferated because you're not investing in, in, in extrapolating a trend of the past. You you you're presuming a trend into the future. Mm. Mm. I was looking up on uh, Wikipedia, and I know it's not the best source of, uh, of um, accurate information, but uh, I had a look at the Dimension Data entry on Wikipedia and had a look at who founded the business, and the names listed there, some of them I've never even heard of. Uh, I don't know if you know these names. Um, Jeremy Ord, of course, but then there was a Peter Neal, uh, Keith McLaughlin, and I, I don't think that's the current investment analyst, uh, Werner, Sievers, Werner Sievers and uh, Kevin Hamilton. Do you recognize any of those names? I do, but you know, ultimately, you know, many businesses get founded with many people. And by the time Dimension Data was ready for um, yep. to proliferate, it was mm. Jeremy. That's why, to me, mm. you know, it was Jeremy, and then there's the executives that actually took it. Those were the founders. Yeah. And yeah. The investment guy was Nick Frangos, who was a Mercedes Information Technology that actually was the, the backer behind. That's why Sunlum ultimately landed up. Um, as 
the de facto sponsor of this very large uh, business because they were the anchor tenants at the start. I'd forgotten about Mercedes Information Technology, Nick Frangos. Uh, uh, he was, uh, the Ellerines were involved there, weren't they? Or am I remembering that incorrectly? Uh, then you went, uh, was it Corp Capital that uh, so the Ellerines and Nick Frangos uh, listed that financial services business and there was a fallout between them. Oh. Um, quite acrimonious um, bet- bet- between a whole bunch of people when Nick uh, uh, Frangos had a falling out. You know, I don't quite remember, but you know, it landed up in an investigation mm. and uh, a parting of ways. But that's probably what you recall. N- oh, maybe. Nick mm. uh, made quite a significant amount of money um, in the technology space before going into financial services. Yeah, yeah. We spoke about Richard Kane. We spoke about David Frankel, who's who's um, a very successful uh, um, investor now in the US. I think he lives in Boston. Um, uh, but there's some other names there that I, I remember. I don't know, Dwight, let me just throw a couple of names out there and see if you see if you remember them and know where they are today. Peter Hurd? Peter Hurd um, was probably the oldest of the team. He was responsible operationally for the networking side. Yeah. So um, he was probably the first to retire mm-hmm. um, uh, that I recall, you know, in terms of um, – so I actually, you know, I kind of see him on my Facebook portfolio, and I think oh, yeah. he's uh, he's the one that's done retirement properly. Okay. Doc Watson, Bruce Watson, Doc Watson, as he's commonly referred to, um, actually continued to serve in Dimension Data. And the last time I saw Jeremy in in the offices, Bruce uh, um, still sat outside uh, Jeremy's office, yeah. and still there was still partners because Doc Watson to me and to, to the market out there in the early 90s you know was always referenced as kind of uh, Jeremy's partner right yes I, I remember I, I never got to know Doc Watson very well but um, yeah he, he was integral to the business and I think he's got a lot of interest in, in the wildlife space I think he's um, he, he spends a lot of time uh, working uh, on private game farms down at the uh, down near the Kruger I forget the details but I think that's his passion yeah, but, but up until recently, and um, I think um, he was a low-key individual. You know, didn't he was. Uh, he really, uh, you know, was Scotty in the engine room, and um, but I, I think he probably stayed with with Jeremy. As I understand it, Jeremy left the building yesterday. Right. And I would have uh, thought that Doc Watson would have left with him at the same time. No, he has. He, he, he's also resigned. He left. Um, it would have been at the same time. Yeah. And I also saw that Jason Goodall perhaps had already preempted this because he'd announced that he was, mm. his last day would have been yesterday as well. Also, Jason, um, also fundamental in, um, in that business. There's another game, uh, uh, um, Taylor, my, uh, I can't remember his first name. Taylor, he, yes. He came yes. from Dimension Data bought SPL. So he was on the software side of things, if I recall. That's right. So mm. he and Dirk Ackerman were, um, were part of the acquisition team that led some of the international acquisitions, including Bonscom. So Dirk Ackerman is, is the other individual. If you remember, Dirk was the CEO of AXA. And then when Dimension mm. Data was still sure, they brought on Dirk. Uh, all collectively a good bunch of friends. So he's also done well. 
It was Rob Taylor. I just Googled it. Rob Taylor. Yes, yeah. Sorry, I just couldn't remember his first name. So yeah. He, yeah. He's continued to be active in, in the training and software side and also charity work. Uh, done well. And then there were the Aptiakas, Ronnie and Alon Aptiaka, as of far course. as the investments of internet solutions. Mm. Ronnie, uh, the movie maker. And... If I'm not mistaken, Ronnie could well still be at Internet Solutions. I know he has an office there. He has an office there for sure. And I think he goes in there. I don't know since COVID, but he he's, he's definitely has an office at Internet Solutions. And and he's revered there because he, he founded the business. Well, yeah, look, I mean, his brother uh, was a senior partner. You know, of course. Ronnie was a junior. But uh, Alon, of course, the story goes that when Dimension Data won the uh, – bought – the rest of uh, internet solutions, first for 12 and a half million, then 375 million. Yeah. Alon and the youngsters also went to Sun City. Alon, who's not a gambler, but- uh, I've heard the know, story, I've heard the story. <laughs> I think you might have told me. Machine and one million rand uh, jackpot. Unbelievable. Uh, crazy story, but true story. Unbelievable. Isn't he a professional bridge player as well? He subsequently became a, a, a bridge player. And yeah. then uh, there was Ati, as well. Through who? Um, uh, the, the Ati brothers. There was Eli Ati and Lior Ati. And oh, Lior yes. Was, yes. So they're also founders of the business. Yes. And, uh, sub- uh, Lior subsequently went on to uh, found a telecoms business, arbitraging um, airtime. I forget the name of it, but um, he's done particularly well. I know so, the business. I know the business you're talking about, but the name also slips my mind. Yeah, yeah, they've done very well. The, the officers are here in the wonder, uh, by the Wondrous. Correct. Yes. Yes, the names have slipped my mind. The name of the business has slipped my mind. It'll come back to me okay. before the end of the podcast. <laughs> and, the, and the names, uh, Saku Misiokas, who, who then subsequently went on to head up IS and then and has also announced his departure. Yep. He, he then progressed into the strategy role you know, uh, yeah. in the last two years. So he's also left. Also, mm-hmm. uh, Stalwart also done incredibly well. So it was Angus, then, uh, Angus McRobert as well. I don't know if you know Angus. He, he's also Angus, gone off. Yeah. Angus wasn't a founder. Uh, no. A little bit of a story there is that, you know, I, when I left, uh, I went to, 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 to uh, was at McCarthy Bank for a number of years and then I joined up with the J&J guys and I put together a joint venture with Internet Solutions to set up a, uh, a black partnership there with J&J. It was all called Icosa. So Gus was on my board. I had a CEO by the name of Rodney DeCock mm-hmm. and uh, Quatera, and we uh, so J&J had a joint venture with Dimension Data slash uh, Internet Solutions essentially to have a black-owned um, internet service provider, which we were reasonably successful with. For a, for a number of years, uh, ultimately we sold that back to Internet Solutions. They bought us out, and J and J went on to buy Verizon, South, a stake in Verizon in South Africa as the empowerment partners in, in Verizon. Interesting. Gus, I think, has gone on to become an investor in the ISP market. He's got a whole bunch of uh, ISPs. He's invested in other businesses as well. So he's done. I think he's done pretty well for himself as well. The Gus came into Dimension Data. They had a little private equity uh, boutique. Mm-hmm. And Gus actually came in from private equity. So he wasn't a founder. came in yeah. and he landed up uh, running that private equity portfolio. And then 
kind of reinvented himself into the CEO uh, of Internet Solutions at a point in time. Actually, he rep- when Brett Dawson went from Internet Solutions to to the US to fix up Proxicom, Gus stepped into his shoes to to, to run Internet Solutions. And did and, a very uh, good job, and did a very good job by yeah. most accounts. He did, and then, you know, he has subsequently reinvented himself yeah. uh, in kind of uh, personal investments. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. So uh, if you were to look back, and I know you've, you've both covered Dimension Data as an analyst when you were at Merrill Lynch, but also worked very closely with the guys on deals and, and, and helping them where you can. If you look back at, at, at your history with Dimension Data, what are some of the highlights uh, for you? Um, you? You mentioned in your LinkedIn post about the uh, about jetting around the world and catching a flight on the Concorde as uh, you were chasing down a deal. Um, but what, what are some of the highlights uh, for you of your of your time working with Jeremy and the boys? Oh, you know, uh, off the top of my head because I didn't really think about this question. I guess the one comes to mind is. You know, I used to present to the guys the whole time. The one thing that the guys did superbly, Dimension Data executives were finely tuned to the investment community. Oh, yeah. And there was a reason why they interacted with you so well and with me so well. I mean, they were essentially talking to the constituency, which they did incredibly well. Yeah. So I, often I used to present to them on the sector. They loved the Merrill Lynch link and the access to information. And I, the one, I, one day I remember presenting to the executive team, I was often pr- invited to present to the executive team in strategy sessions. And I was sitting at the Oval and you know, I was engaging and I saw this guy at the back called Jeremy Ord. <laughs> and I saw him gazing out the window, staring out, and I thought to myself, you know, this oak just isn't interested anymore. You know, he's just not. And I, and I was, had my nose a little bit put out. Okay. It was only about 20 years, you know, and I continued engaging with him. So, but it was only 20 years later, I worked out why he was staring out the window. I don't underestimated how smart this guy is. The reason he was staring out the window is because I was waffling on and he'd already got it ages before. <laughs> and two years ago, we started engaging with him on, on a prospective transaction. And, you know, it was only, you know, when I'm getting down to the detail, and then I'd be telling Jeremy one or two things. And uh, and I'm ten percent into telling the discussion. Put up his hand and said, "I get it." And I let's have a glass of wine. You know, um, and that's you know that resonates in terms of how smart a guy he was. Everyone thinks he's the golfer, ex cricketer, sport. Yes, he is. He's a very congenial and uh, likable guy. But he is. People underestimate how smart he is. So that's the one story. The other was, of course, on this, on this deal because, you know, Dimension Data was a bucket shop. It was this aggregation of things. It was outsourcing. It was networking. Mm. It was a 25% second. And then I was tasked to go and raise $300 million for them in Datacraft. First of all, I was briefed by the team in Santon City. So I met all of the executives. Patrick Cornby is another guy that uh, you should – we already read the investment yes. banking. We can't, we can't leave Pat out of the uh... – uh, out of this discussion, can we? No. So, Pat, and I met the whole executive. They explained to me why they're doing the deal. And, you know, it was a secret squirrel meeting there in, in the Santon uh, bar, you know, which we shouldn't have met. And I remember coming down the escalator with Jeremy and we saw one of my competitor analysts. Oh, yes. Uh, Leslie Virgilotti. I remember Leslie. Coming the other way. And we were so scared that Les was very shocked. 
Yeah. If she saw it together, she'd work something was up. And I remember us hiding under the escalator and as a collective huddle to, <laughs> to avoid Leslie actually seeing us and working out that she's missing out on something, either she's missing out on something or that uh, we're cooking up a corporate finance deal. So that was uh, incredibly good. And then that data craft deal was something else, you know. Yeah. Dimension data was completely unknown overseas. SAB had managed to raise some money off floor. They had to place their, their shares at a significant discount to the, to the VWAP. And I was tasked with going and educating um, potential investors in, the, in Europe and the US. And I landed up on a six-week tour seeing about 30 investors in Europe. And I was in Europe when Princess Di's funeral. It was an uh, incredible uh, sensation to be out there marketing at such a sad time. And then I landed up in the, in the US, uh, arriving in the US on Concord. Mm-hmm. I thought, gee, guys, these, are the, these guys are really looking after me. Uh, <laughs> of course, after a couple of glasses of champagne, I realized the reason I was on Concord was so that I could arrive before, uh, before I took off to, to fit in three meetings. I ah. ended up doing, doing three cities a day for nearly three weeks. I would literally get a ticket and um, fly into a, to a city. I would get met by a limo and a salesperson, get taken to a new institution, present the story, move to the next meeting. Sure. So that we could develop a short list, um, eventually out of maybe 100 investors, uh, investment institutions, I boiled it down to 30 interested parties in Europe, or 20 in Europe and 30 in the US. Then um, after that, the US, our corporate finance team took Dimension Data executives offshore to go and see them face-to-face. So they would then go see the shortened list. And then we uh, did a book build. And we did the book build. I remember the share was trading at 18 rand a share. We placed $300 million worth of shares at 18 rand a share. So. That was a fantastic moment in 1997 and really did uh, re- uh, got them as a known entity to the international community and it nearly killed me. <laughs> fantastic stories. I, th- I think we could carry on talking about uh, Dimension Data and the, and the IT industry and your uh, your experiences from the IT industry for, for a long time, but uh, we, are, we, are, we are running out of time, Duarte, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time chatting about your... Uh, your history and your career background, um, because you've done some really interesting stuff as well. You were the uh, founder of Macquarie First South, which was a financial services institution, a bank, effect, effectively, I believe. Um, what was the what was the genesis of that? Why did you decide to do that, and uh, what 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 would you, what did you manage to achieve with it? Well, prior to that, I'd left Merrill Lynch. To, I'd been poached by a company called African Harvest that was backed by Coronation and Peregrine to set up a, a private equity fund, which I did. Um, we we had a, a very successful period from 98 to 2001. We then in conjun- uh, merged ourselves into McCarthy Bank, and there a, a well-known gentleman by the name of Jonathan Baer became mm. effectively the anchor tenant. And we landed up doing, at the time, what was probably the biggest IT uh, private equity deal. We bought out the IT assets out of Nail, uh, called NAF at the time. And I remember mm. we bought 360 million rand, and then we progressed to sell off the pieces. I landed up listing IOCore um, in Finland, and that was an exciting venture. But I then listed up listing uh, a telecoms intercarrier billing piece of software called Intec, which peaked if I, at probably a billion pounds market cap. Good grief. In that process, my, par- uh, my partners landed having a, an almighty scrap 
over who owned what and the fact that uh, some of the partners had promised to do all their deals exclusively through McCarthy Bank and didn't. So that's why that entity actually it colla- it basically fell apart. We went our separate ways because we had a, a bit of a falling out in terms of how to divvy up the pie there. So basically, I was um, hadn't turned 40, I was 35, 36, and I needed to do something. So I was friends with Jane Aydu, and he said, come and do some stuff with us. I said, I'm really not stepping into something new. I will help you do investments, and I will share. So I was effectively their chief investment officer, but not employed permanently. Mm-hmm. And... Then another colleague of mine by the name of James Slubbert, who was the top-rated banking analyst, said, listen, why don't we set up a financial services business? I said, oh, yeah, hell, why not? So we actually looked at buying Gensec at a, at a point in time. We looked at buying Barnard Jacob Millet at the time. Mm-hmm. And eventually what came up is that Credit Suisse First Boston were pulling out the country. James and I went and negotiated with Credit Suisse First Boston, and we landed up buying, uh, buying their broking business. And we used that as a base to build the financial services business with J&J's backing, who in turn were backed by Old Mutual. So uh, James at some point in time decided that he preferred to be, was, was offered something at APSA and became executive director, head of business banking. So he departed and left me uh, with a, a few assets. Mm-hmm. I bought uh, the outsourcing business out of um, specialized outsourcing. I bought a stake in an asset manager called uh, Freighters Asset Management at the time. I had First South, which was the, the Credit Suisse First Boston securities business. And then in 2005, I decided uh, that we needed a, a partner. Um, the discussions with Credit Suisse became an all or nothing. So I decided that the latter was more relevant because I hadn't created enough value to sell. So I exited that. Credit Suisse went into partnership with Standard Bank, and I brought Macquarie into the country because they were prepared to work with us as a joint venture partner. So we formed Macquarie First South, which was at securities, corporate finance, uh, private equity, and um, asset management. Ultimately, Macquarie then uh, made me responsible for all of their operations in Africa, including um, the joint venture. Okay. Okay. And when when did you leave that business? What 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 was the, what was the progression? Well, I, I, as the head of, I, I put a strategy together <laughs> called Project Nile, which was really um, Macquarie's entree uh, uh, proliferation into Africa. We thought we'd use this as a footprint. They liked my idea so much that they said, "Well, we need to own a hundred percent of this thing." You know, and that's where you know there was a kind of conflict of interest because I didn't really want to work for someone. Mm. And I, I don't think I'm employable. So I said, well, we're going to buy it. We'll sell it to you. We entered into negotiations. And Macquarie bought our 50% with the idea of investing money into South Africa. I managed to exit and sell and and be paid seven days before Jacob, before Jacob Zuma fired Nene. Oh. I don't think the transaction would have been completed had uh, that happened. Macquarie looked at this and said, well, this ain't good. You know, the money that we were going to invest, we're not going to invest. And sadly, the consequence of that was now they were stranded without an empowerment partner, the founder, and a change of mind in terms of deploying money into the, into South Africa. I mean, just the unintended consequences of uh, Mr. Zuma's uh, 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 stupidity. Shuffling. 
But I got paid, and uh, fortunately, I then landed up being uh, quite ill after that. So prescient mm. and lucky to be. Yeah, I was. I wanted to touch on on the health issues that you've um, you've faced uh, over the last few years. Um, I uh, you've uh, you've lost your arm. Um, what what exactly happened? You had a rare. A health condition um, that eventually they had to operate. And I believe you almost lost your life. So I had, uh, for year, in my mid twenties, uh, uh, a condition, a vascular form malformation developed in my left arm, which I was obviously born with, and it just got worse and worse. And effectively, the veins in my arm were swelling under high blood pressure. Okay. I had numerous treatments, which, in hindsight, had been shown to be um, the incorrect treatment and aggravated the condition. So over, call it 30 years, I had uh, probably 100 treatments slash operations. Sure. Eventually, um, you know, it, it, got, it got worse and worse. And just after I sold my business, it, it started to get really bad, incredibly painful. And I started needing active surgical treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, as a consequence of those active treatments, I contracted the hospital superbug, oh. uh, MRSA. I was actually in a huge board meeting cheering it online when, and I already had it clearly, but I, I literally remember looking at my clock. It was 12 o'clock, yeah. and I remember waking up in hospital three days later. Good grief. Uh, I, had a, uh, I had a massive temperature, and uh, MRSA is in, in, incredibly serious um, with a fatality rate of 35%. I managed to survive that. But the problem was that the, the bug actually ate away the valve of my heart and I Oof. needed open-heart surgery as a consequence of that on top of. Uh, during my open-heart surgery, uh, you, you're messing around with the vascular system. Yeah. My arm essentially exploded and, and so on and so on. I landed up uh, many months in ICU isolation. My heart stopped a few times, uh, but clearly the devil had a restraining order and didn't let me in. So <laughs> I, I didn't want you. <laughs> and I, I actually wish that my arm had been amputated uh, before I contracted all of these things. Yeah. Uh, the surgeon does acknowledge that it, we should have done it earlier, but it was dangerous because um, I nearly lost my life as well when the, the, the amputation had to be had to be done. Mm. Again, you know that's history. Uh, I came straight out of that into. COVID lockdown, and I've spent a year recovering, and I'm fully recovered and causing trouble, as you know. Well, I hope you've managed to avoid COVID after all of that, uh, Duarte. I have managed to avoid COVID. I'm not paranoid, but I'm very careful. I'm sure. I'm sure. But um, with with the, uh, I believe you've um, you're working on you've gotten a bionic arm or some sort of electronic arm that you've uh, that that you've um, that you've bought. Uh, take us through that. Yeah, I call him Alfred because you know, Alfred. Um, Batman's assistant was called Alfred, and he always gave him a hand. So it's a, it's a, it is, <laughs> as I believe, only one of three in the country. Um, oh. I, I got it last year. It unfortunately did set me back two million rand uh, with uh, zero assistance from my dear medical act. Good grief! And um, uh, it has been a challenge to get a fit because there are residual circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think we're nearly there, and um, you know uh, the fit. We've ultimately had to make a um, socket and attachment that is pretty unique globally for <clears throat> the billion, the billion euro business um, called Autobach that have produced this thing. 
Yeah. I'll uh, be gladly show it off once it's uh, uh, Alfred has just come back from Germany where he is being serviced, and I'll gladly show him off uh, when uh, he's att- we're attached. So, so I'm interested in the tech. How does it work exactly? I mean, can you can you control your fi- the thing's fingers, Alfred's fingers, and move them around with your mind? Uh, almost. I mean, yeah. there is there is a motor on every joint, so you get very articulated uh, motion. Yeah. I've got an elbow. You can actually put a motor as well on the wrist. We haven't included that because the learning is too uh, is too steep. But what it has, it's you've got a, fi- a fiberglass cuff that goes over the stump yeah. and attached, you've got el- electrodes on the inside and effectively it either picks up a twitch of the bicep or the tricep and you learn a combination. For instance, if I flex the bicep, the hand opens. If I flex the tricep, it closes. And then there is a whole bunch of pre-programs. You know, if you twitch twice, if you twitch three times and you can actually program it on your Bluetooth. For instance, I'm a keen photographer and yeah. there's a whole bunch of motions. So I've got you know, a fixed tripod that I travel around with, <laughs> which is called an arm. And, I, you know, I've got specific motions and I program it with my cell phone and I can use that specifically. So, for instance, if you'd like to do this particular motion with your fingers, you just program it once, there's two twitches of... And so it is literally a cyborg. Um, it's one step away from um, you think it and it happens. Incredible. Do you, do you think at some at some point in the future you'd get to the point where you could maybe use a computer keyboard with both hands? So yes, absolutely. And in yeah. fact, in the trial run, um, you know, there is a sensor on the finger that allows me uh, to actually um, type on, on on my phone. And um, absolutely, you know, I can put the finger. I can uh, control the thing. I can control all of the fingers in every joint, and I can control. Uh, putting out the index finger or two fingers. In fact, it's I can pull dirty signs, which I've done out to the, my, my uh, <laughs> car, which Autobox said uh, yeah, I found a way to crack the code because they programmed it specifically that you couldn't uh, do rude gestures. <laughs> <laughs> so you hacked it. <laughs> <I've> hacked it. <laughs> Oh, I love it, Dora. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, I'm going to have to meet Alfred when he comes back from Germany and, and, and you can show me everything he can do because uh, it, it's very, very cool tech. Very, very amazing what they can do these days. Uh, but uh, I'm really sorry you had to go through all of that, uh, all, that all those health issues. And uh, you've uh, been literally been through the wars. Yeah, I have. But um, as I'm back. And like I said previously, I'm back and causing trouble. And, uh, <laughs> I've got a number of very exciting projects other than those that are in the public domain. Sure. But, um, uh, you know, right now, you know, I guess now the frustrating thing is third wave of COVID. Mm. And I really, really now I'm into the second year of isolation. Yeah. And I really... Um, frustrating. You know, uh, yeah. The, the more I'm isolated, the more trouble I'm, li- I'm likely to cause. You just get, on, get into trouble on the internet instead of in person. <laughs> on podcasts like this one. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, Dwight, it's been fantastic talking to you. Before we go, you've, um, you have you do have some interest in the IT sector. You're the chairman of Huge Group, which, of course, is in the middle of uh, a bidding war for uh, uh, Adapt IT, which is a JSE-listed company. Um, do you see yourself um, becoming more involved in the IT space going forward again? 
So, you know, it's interesting. When I, when I departed from um, Macquarie First South and South, James Herbstum, I've known for 25 years, mm-hmm. contacted me almost within minutes of the, the Bloomberg article coming out. Ah. Went to breakfast and he said, would you like to do that? Funnily enough, I had just, the last thing I did in Macquarie First South was um, as part of my business, not directly, but we listed capital depreciation SPAC. So I had every aspiration of doing a SPAC in South Africa before Jacob screwed up the equity capital market. <laughs> so James asked me to join the board. Uh, I thought about it. Uh, he said, go and think about it. I came back uh, over Christmas and said, I thought about it. Interesting. I don't want to be part of an Altex company. I'll join if you join the main board. Um, then he said, well, I was actually lying. If you're going to come on board, I'd like you to be the chairman. I said, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Why not? <laughs> so um, I then thought, gee, you know, this could be an interesting vehicle. And you might recall I actually had, to get together with uh, the CFI, I landed up with an option um, in, in HUGE. So HUGE was very much part of my, in, uh, my involvement. Of course, then I had a two-year period where I, I went from quasi-executive, because the last thing I did effectively for HUGE was raise, help them raise the money to do the ConnectNet deal. We, we raised... We did a 450 million rand raise, and, to, uh, and at the time, the interesting thing that kind of tickles me when I got involved with Huge, they had a, a turnover, uh, they had a, a turnover of 200 million rand, a profit after tax of 20 million rand, and a market cap of 400 million rand. <laughs> exactly what I mentioned data had in 1994. So it tickled me that I was getting involved with the group at that point in time. So that tickled me, and then. In my mind, this could be an, uh, a vehicle to do what I wanted to do because the SPAC story, to do a SPAC in South Africa, just vaporized. And I was doing some things in agriculture and the like. And so I've become more and more involved. I had a two-year kind of leave of absence where I became a proper non-executive through my illness. And I, I'm not executive, but I'm very, very much involved mm-hmm. uh, with huge, and in particular, the SADAPT IT transaction. Where do, you see that, where do you see that deal going? We're going to be successful. You know, uh, you did see the scheme of arrangements getting uh, with the Valaris uh, getting passed yesterday. I did. Um, but, you know, we were quite clear in terms of what our intent was. We didn't need yeah. a controlling interest. Our offer is better than the Canadian office, the offer. Um, you know, we've got into a little bit of a bidding war. I do believe we're offering something uh, special. I do believe we're offering participants of Adapt IT continued exposure to the markets. Right now, what's happening in the global tech markets, I mean, this feels like the 90s all over again, just for a different reason. Mm. You know, there's, uh, there's buckets of money available out there that support good ideas. I believe that you have to have the right instrument, critical mass, and that's Really, one of the, the primary reasons why we thought that ourselves together with ADAPT would be a collectively big enough to go and tap into the opportunities that exist here and the money that exists offshore. So we, we will be, we already are getting acceptances. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still a number of, uh, you know, the regulatory uh, challenges have not been inconsequential and there have been many obstacles. We didn't expect... Um, uh, uh, an international foreign competitor to us. It is what it is. In some ways, it makes us feel good. You know, if a company like Constellation that has ten, with tens of billions of dollars 
could identify at the same, could, could see the value that we can see, kind of substantiates our filtering ability. And, you know, 12 million shares voted against the scheme yesterday. Mm. Those have mm. clearly got to be people that, uh, that are in favor. 50 million didn't vote. Mm. You know, uh, we do believe that we're going to land up with a significant minority stake, and that's a good starting point. We're not upset. If, if Constellation of Valaris land up being alongside us, that's not a terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, interesting. So, so you'll stay a shareholder post this, even if Valaris gets control. Laura's have got to uh, effective control. Yeah. I mean, uh, oh, what we do want to do is uh, uh, is effectively uh, provide the ADAPT IT shareholders with the continued exposure to the upside through a listed instrument rather than just taking the cash. Remember, if it's we uh, ADAPT IT will probably stay listed because you know we will ensure that it is if we've got sufficient votes. If it doesn't, you know, we will uh, uh, we will stay there. And of course, you know, if we have a significant minority stake, you know, we will be able to protect our interests and work al- uh, alongside them in terms of uh, the international expertise. So I see it as a win-win situation. Mm. Hopefully, you know, because of the complexities and confidentialities, I mean, we have not been able to interact with them, and we look forward to being able to interact with them. Yeah, and, and also. Um, to interact with the ADAPT IT management team, which we've been precluded from talking to. Because yeah. I do believe that they think that we're kind of, you know, the big, bad, vicious wolf. Yeah. Actually, we're much less than a potential international investors. You know, mm-hmm. we need the management team. We need to work with them. The idea of uh, being together, uh, by de facto, means that we need those people. Yeah. It's not so that uh, an international $30 billion company needs anyone except to take the, internet, uh, the intellectual property. So these are, and remember, I've dealt with international partners. You know, they're, they're not the savior, they're there for a reason. They're here to, to create value. And they, we will hopefully protect um, uh, the South African intellectual property, we'll protect investor, uh, investor interest, and we'll give them, leave them exposed to the upside. So I'm excited about it, and I do think we'll, we'll come, we'll, We've already got enough shares to, 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 to meet our minimum criteria. Hmm. Um, so, uh, in theory, we've already succeeded, but I think we'll succeed with a significant minority stake. Yeah, interesting. Can you work with a management team that has been openly hostile to your bid, though? Duncan, remember, it's only two people yeah. that have spoken about this. I hmm. mean, the CEO has got, uh, I wouldn't want to comment about you know, his challenges. Sure. Um, um, I mean, I've always been particularly concerned about the fact that he owns 100% of a, pro- of a property that is leased back to a company mm-hmm. for a 13-year lease. So, yeah. I mean, um, that's going to be a challenge. But we will work with it. You know, I'd, I'd like to unpack that. And then the, the, uh, there's Tiffany, who's the acting CEO. Yeah. So uh, we have not engaged with uh, – I, I do believe that there's a sphere. We have not engaged with anyone. Mm-hmm. We 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 have got not uh, we have got no animosity to to either of those. I mean, uh, uh, we wish we would have uh, been able to talk to them. At the end of the day, we spoke directly to the people who own the business, and that was always our intention. To perhaps uh, that's classified as hostile, I guess. But um, at the end of the day, you know, I don't think I, I think corporate M and A in South Africa has been too clubby. 
in the past. Yeah. We want to go and talk to the owners, but the idea was never to be uh, one of animosity. We, for this to be successful, we have to partner with the team. So yeah. we will work with them, and I do think we can. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's been quite an interesting uh, uh, bid all round in that, um, you know, you've also put out those, uh, uh, if I can call them attack ads, um, having a, having a, I mean, it's, it's almost an American sort of approach uh, of, of marketing to uh, adapt IT shareholders and saying, you know, we're better off together, put out these videos on YouTube. I know that one of the regulators told you to take the videos down from, from the huge group website, but it, it's... Um, we're seeing some interesting uh, corporate activity here that we do or, or types of corporate activity through this deal that we don't normally see in the South African context. It's exactly what I said. It's been a bit of a clubby mentality and yeah. kind of we're all going to do handshakes. Mm. You know, it isn't by chance that we followed the American approach. Um, you know, it, it's a proven uh, method and I do think it's time to, it was time to, to, to shake it up a little bit. On the, uh, but really, I mean, why we had to go to the public media like that? Yeah. Adapt IT of Good Names had effectively very. I mean, we're made up of institutional investors and very little retail. Mm. Uh, the pl- plus side of that is when we want to go and do corporate uh, corporate activity, we go and talk to where the money is. Yeah. You know, the, the, the downside of not having that is that you know you've got to go to the mass retail. So they have in excess of 12,000 shareholders. Mm. You cannot communicate um, on a roadshow to that base. We had to go to the, to the media. And yes, I, uh, you know, we had to comply with the regulator, but uh, we, were into, uh, we did not use information that wasn't in the public. Yes, we were a little bit punchy. And I think it was, uh, I think everyone has reverted back and said, you know, that was just so enlightening. That was just so uh, refreshing that you prepared to do that. You know, we've got a message. And the message is that we're better off together. The message is don't be stranded in, a, in an entity where you can't control your interests. We believe that. And, you know, the regulator had a view that it was a, an announcement. I don't understand that. You it, know, seemed, it did seem a bit silly. Well, yeah, I, I'm not going to comment on that. You know, the regulator is entitled to do that. Uh, I'm just not clever enough to understand how communicating public information is uh, an announcement, but we pulled it uh, in compliance with. Of course, uh, social media went crazy after that. Yes. But uh, we complied with what we were told to do. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff, and we'll uh, we'll know um, the outcome of this uh, all adapt IT pursuit in the coming weeks, right? It's uh, there's a meeting in mid July where it's all going to be decided. Yes, well, well, uh, there was a scheme of arrangement uh, meeting yesterday, which uh, you've noted has been approved. Yeah, uh, and the numbers were very interesting to us. You know, uh, of course, uh, Valaris is not working with a hedge fund by the name of Black Sheep. There's no concert party there, of course. Um, <laughs> But they voted, you know, um, you know I, I can imagine someone bought shares at seven rand to sell at six rand fifty just because they like, like, they like someone. <laughs> so on the, 13th, on the 13th of so that was approved. Yeah. On the 13th of July, there will be uh, our general meeting because, um, you know, we have to get a category one approval. And then by the end of the month, our offer closes. So between now and the 31st of July, you know, we need to get a message out to mm. the adapt shareholders who have not given irrevocables, mm-hmm. because you can only choose one option, that there is an option that 
instead of taking... Remember that the Valores deal is still subject to a whole bunch of conditions precedent, yep. including Reserve Bank approval, um, mm-hmm. uh, COMPCOM approval. And let's just remember that Burger King has uh, not achieved that because it was a foreign entity taking out a local entity. So you cannot give this 100% certainty. So if you go there offer, you will get seven rand in December or later, maybe. If you take our offer, you get uh, effectively 1.37 times uh, your shares in, in huge, which you can sell in the market immediately. You know, I know liquidity is an issue, mm-hmm. but you may have seen there's been some big block trades um, uh, uh, that have happened off market recently, and uh, uh, that that shows that we've got institutional support um, who have deep pockets. So you can take that, you can be exposed to the joint businesses going forward, or you can sell, you know, uh, immediately. You don't have to wait till December for maybe. So those are the messages we need to get out there. Uh, we do believe, we do hope people will take it on the ratio. Um, we were, we did change our offer significantly based on the independent report. Uh, and we had to talk about that long and hard because, you know, there was new information in the market and there's also, you know, a whole bunch of noise and ugliness around the CEO that we had to consider. Yeah. And, uh, but ultimately, we went to the limit to say, look, this is not where we're trying to buy something cheap. We had an idea on value and we had been told what that value was, incidentally. That's why we used that number of 552. We didn't invent that. Remember at the time... Uh, the uh, you know the share last year the share was trading at the back. No one was interested in it. So we 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 made the offer, and then we had the independent. Uh, that independent would have had access to management adapt IT, which we didn't have. So we offered the the, the peak price to, as a demonstration that we want to pay the right price, not a cheap price. Valaris increased the offer from six rand fifty to seven rand, even though the valuation is somewhere between seven and right. Mm-hmm. Sounds like they're trying to get a cheap price to me, but you know who am I to say? <laughs> Interesting. So, so your involvement in 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 huge group? Do you, I mean do you see? I know that um, huge group has said they're planning to list in London. Uh, clearly, James has big ambitions. Um, do you do you see huge group uh, with you uh, helping as chairman uh, becoming a much more significant player in the ICT market in South Africa? I mentioned to you that there is a mountain of money out there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, the cash in hand, if you look at the the. the the evolution of the retail invest in the US. You look at market volumes, you look at the SPAC activity. You know, it is ideas and quality investments that uh, is lacking, not money. I believe that uh, um, you can access that money if you give them the instrument that they need. It's very hard for a retail US investor to invest in South Africa or other. You know, they've got to go through the institute, they tax obstacles. I mean, it looks like it's uh, seamless, but it isn't. Mm. Uh, people want to be able to, in, 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 and and uh, therefore we want to tap into those global, whether it's through Europe, whether it's through New York. You know, you want to give them the instrument that they want so that they can deploy in, uh, money into the, we believe that the region offers significant opportunity. There are the whole disruption around um, 
telecoms mobility x x tech we are positioned to come we are small but there are as an instrument we can provide a conduit for investment and i'm very passionate about that i'd like to be involved and certainly with my experience as an investment banker i would uh, i would see fit to 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 deploy, uh, if i was requested to help in growing a de- uh, uh, huge to to be of sufficient scale to be attractive to, for for money to, and then a to attract that money and b to deploy that money in successful acquisitions to to grow um and, and develop the opportunity in the region I wanted to ask you, you talk about uh, the, the money flowing through the system in the U.S. at the moment, and certainly the valuations there are very interesting at the moment. You've lived through through the dot-com bubble, the 2000 crash. We're seeing Microsoft, we're seeing Apple with market caps above $2 trillion. We're seeing Tesla with a market cap of $600 billion, which I think makes it about 10 times the size of VW, um, or, or, or worth more than, I think the figure I saw was worth more than uh, the top the next 10 car makers combined. Um, do you think that we're in a, in a dot-com style bubble in the US right now? And do you think it's going to burst? You know, even a stock clock is right twice a day. The market <laughs> will crash. Correct. The higher it goes, the, higher, uh, the more it's got to fall. Yeah. I mean, there's without question. But that doesn't mean that those, com- you know, notwithstanding the dot-com crash, just remember that Amazon was founded in 1995. And now it's a two trillion. It was founded through that. It was founded with the capital that it accessed. You know, um, the the valuations do seem incredible. They do seem heady. Mm. But I mentioned to you that if you if you try and value these things on the basis of equilibrium or accounting standards, you're never going to come up with a valuation. What we have failed to recognise is the the platform effect the network effect, whatever you want to call it, Metcalfe's law. And that is, you know, I remember when, uh, because uh, Merrill Lynch was involved in Amazon, it was just a bookstore that competed with uh, with Barnes & Noble. No. An analyst uh, got fired from Merrill Lynch for basically calling Amazon a a sell because he said, you know, they're going to have to sell probably uh, every book in the world to justify this valuation. Right. What they failed to, what he failed to recognize, and I'm not even sure that Jeff Bezos, whom I met in 1995, I'm not sure that he even realized that he was going to become a platform. <laughs> right. And so, you know, the disruptive effect, the, the, the revolution, it all sounds like buzzwords. But we are... Uh, we are undergoing that, in the crea- and there will be a creation of new value. And you know what? Some of them are going to crash and burn. There was lots of crap that listed in 1999, yeah. me included, doing some stuff in South Africa. And there's lots <laughs> of crap that's getting listed now. It smells the same. Yeah. It feels the same. The, uh, the difference here is that I think you've got an, uh, a post-COVID economic recovery that I've never seen before. Mm. You've got a zero interest rate environment, which I've never seen before. Mm. Yes, inflation's a risk. You've seen savings here uh, in excess. These stimulus packages. Mm. This economy, the market, is it expensive? Yes. Is it going to stay expensive? Yes. Mm. How long? I don't know. I, I worked out somewhere in December, November, that uh, this, is, this window is going to stay open for at least 18 months. Mm. It's still 18 months. So I don't see it, uh, you know, beyond that, it's just too far to see. 
But in that time, you can go and uh, get support for great ideas. You can build great businesses. You can aggregate uh, and you can create a whole bunch of uh, um, revolutionary businesses. That's, the, uh, that's what I'm excited about being involved in Huge, because Huge could be the, the kernel of something like that. Adapt IT brings in intellectual property that could add to that. You know, uh, and there are others that we would like to, but you need access to real money. Mm. And actually, the, 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 the sad thing is, it's almost easier to raise money offshore to invest in South Africa and Africa than it is for South Africa. You know, the, the fund managers are, are here, unfortunately, are chasing index, so they don't support anything outside the top 40. Yeah. And then they're all promoting, and we're all guilty of this, you know, looking over the fence and trying to exp uh, export our, our capital. I mean, uh, Rob Herzog has just, uh, and his team, mm. Bradley Doig, have just raised $360 million for a SPAC to invest in gold uh, production facilities in South Africa and Africa. Now, from my world as a technologist, that's pretty damn boring stuff. But it's <laughs> important. Yeah. It says that, I tell you what, how much do you think you'd raise from South African institutions for that? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's indicative that the money does want to be deployed in the right vehicle for Africa and South Africa. And it's probably, you know, profits, uh, profits are always recognized outside of their hometown rather than in their hometown. And I do believe that South African Africa is a great investment opportunity, especially in a world that is short on ideas. So the valuations here yeah, relative to the rest uh, to America are cheap. Mm. Let's help them um, invest in the continent by uh, respecting the vehicle that they want to. Uh, uh, and Huge represents an example, not the only example. I've just mentioned the gold spec. I do believe car track went the other way. They're just delisted mm. in South Africa and moved. Look what, look at the valuation they, that uh, uh, offshore people are prepared for exactly the same asset. Yes, and much we higher. We don't know how to value our own assets. Mm. IT was trading at a back last year. All of a sudden, we make an offer this year, and everyone's interested. Yeah. And, and now we're guilty of, uh, of, of trying to score uh, a cheap price. But we're offering five times the price it was a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, this market. It's uh, In this market, yeah. that our institutions are not prepared to recognize. Hmm. You know, we need investment in this country. I'm passionate. I, I'm in South Africa not because uh, I'm here by default. I've had many opportunities to, 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 to emigrate and to, to depart. And I'm here because I'm excited about the people. I'm excited about the opportunity. And I'm excited... I, I, what dimension dated it in the 90s? Where yeah. they, they exported, people said, gee, these guys know how to do something. These guys are exciting, not because they're networking, but they can see the next opportunity. Mm -hmm. They can jump on the next thing. They are able to see it. They are able to take a developed world and deploy it in a massive emerging world. That's what they really did. Why can't we do that again? You almost need a switch in the... Um 
energy of the nation, if I can put it that way. You, I think people are so depressed and, and conservative and not willing to invest because of the 10 years that we've just been through where there's just been so much destruction and, and stupidity, stupid political decision-making, et cetera, et cetera, that I think businesses here are just sitting back and taking a wait-and-see approach. Is this country actually going to fly again? And uh, when it does, then maybe they'll start investing, but they really are sitting back and not investing right now. Do you think that's a mistake in your view? Do you think that um, business people here are being too, too conservative? You know, it, we're, uh, like I said previously, we're all human. Yeah. And we all get despondent. And, you know, what we fail to see, and if you're an international investor, you know, you have an MSCI index. And you say, well, you know what? I invest in 20 emerging markets because I like the story. The developed world can only grow if they get access to the emerging market resources and, and food, which is here. And, uh, and, uh, and the continent. They can, uh, so the developed world is going to grow well, not if they can't get the, the raw materials out there. So that's the first. You know, the, um, we get so tied up in our day-to-day problems. They say, we understand emerging markets is a good market. We understand that, uh, that there's 10 good markets in the world. We are going to deploy 1% in each one of those markets. Some of them will be basket cases, others won't. So they don't get into the minutia that, uh, that Jacob Zuma has been indicted and, 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 and going to jail. They say it's an emerging market. You know, as they say in the classics, uh, poo happens. <laughs> Doesn't matter. You know, it happens in all those emerging markets. We are taking an asset allocation process. You know, we are, we have, uh, not only are we not deploying our own money, which I think uh, because of that pessimism, we are making it harder to invest. Yes. And the JSP is a great, respectable organization, top, uh, often top three exchanges in the world. Unfortunately, that also means that it becomes hard uh, uh, because of the, uh, they have not facilitated investment into the country. Mm. That's why I'm saying it's almost easier to raise money or four to deploy locally mm. because they'll take a portfolio approach. You give them the vehicle that they want rather than the vehicle we want to give them. We are the take of money. We're not setting the rules. Uh, so I'm not clever enough to work out why they support SPACs, why they do valuations. I, I'm just going to give them an honest opportunity and give them the ability to deploy their money. Once you do that, you know what will happen? The South African institutions will follow. Yeah. We've got one of the greatest resource bases in the world. We've got no, we haven't done um, um, development mining for 15 years in this country. Hmm. The, base, the junior miners, the South African junior miners are listed in Australia and Toronto because there's a problem with our uh, asset management fraternity. There's a, a, an aggregation. The problem is if an asset manager in a large institution deploys $10 million in a junior miner and it doubles in value, it does nothing for his performance. But if it halves, he loses his job. The concentration in our market is a problem. Yep. Therefore, they almost have, uh, by, uh, by default, they're not going to support developmental players like this. Hmm. Whereas, uh, it's, again, almost easier to go and get foreign money for local deployment. When you get to critical mass, the institutions have to follow and support uh, those entities after the fact. Yeah. 
I think let's wrap it there. I'm, I'm going to ask a, a final, perhaps a little cheeky question and, and, and try and bring the conversation full circle to where we were. We started talking about dimension data. Um, you, you're uh, very clearly uh, keen to, to, to get back into deal-making and, and, uh, and, and, and into business, and you're showing interest in the IT sector again. Um, Jeremy Ord is is at a loose end, if I can put it that way. He's left Dimension Data, doesn't have a full-time job anymore. Do you see yourself and Jeremy potentially working together on something in the future? You know, um, I'd have to let him answer that. I'd, I'd love to. I wish the yeah. opportunity, I hope the opportunity uh, arises. I did get Jeremy and his executives um, a couple of years ago to invest directly in Huge. Uh, we did try to do a transaction together there. Oh, yes. Um, some of those executives are still investor on our share register. Um, so I have a good relationship with them and others. I'd love to work with Jeremy. I'm not sure if the feeling's mutual. I uh, <laughs> hope so. And um, no time will tell. You know, uh, I've obviously got to come up with a good idea. And of course, as you point out, you know, the poor guy is on his last penny and probably is desperate for some money. <laughs> Not. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Excellent stuff. Well, uh, Duarte, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time. I know we have run quite a bit over our allotted time, so thanks for... Uh, Thanks for taking the time out this afternoon, but I think it's been a fascinating discussion and uh, I'd love to invite you on again onto the podcast at some point and perhaps uh, our, uh, our viewers can meet Alfred as well. I look forward to that, Duncan. Thank you very much.